Would you please stand with me, friends, as we read today from Galatians chapter 2. I'd like to read for us verses 11 through 21. We are here today because Tuesday is Reformation Day. Funny story about that. I was not, um, while we had some, some teaching in my home about Reformation, uh, I didn't know a whole lot of anything when I went to seminary. And I'm at Westminster Seminary in San Diego. Professor says, well, we all know what October 31st is. And I almost said, Halloween. I'm so glad I didn't. <laughs> almost said it. It's really a wonderful uh, day to commemorate. Because while the world celebrates death, we celebrate life. If you will listen now to the Lord's word, I'm reading from Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. This is the Lord's word. Would you please be seated, friends? Again, our Father, we thank you for your word and pray that you would help this servant and help these your people. Bless us, Father, to set us free more and more, that we might not fall prey to the doctrines of demons and to the desires of men, but that we would honor Christ and that we would rest and rejoice in him alone. Bless now your word going forward and cause the kingdom of Satan injury and make your servant faithful, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. October 31st, 1517, 506 years ago, was the start of what has come to be known as the Protestant Reformation. Most of us know this and have the image. In fact, you can look at the bulletin cover. John Harris has drawn this, and I think every year at this time I use the same bulletin cover because it's epic. It's a picture of Martin Luther, the Augustinian monk, posting his 95 thesis on the church door at the castle Wittenberg. The 95 uh, thesis was uh, 
disputable points that Luther had with the Roman Catholic Church. And in particular, he addresses the issue of indulgences. Indulgences is still a thing in the Roman Catholic Church. An indulgence is a remission of part or all of the temporal and especially purgatorial punishment that according to the Roman Church is due for sins whose eternal punishment has been remitted and whose guilt has been pardoned. John Tetzel uh, was sent to Germany by the Roman Catholic Church to sell indulgences to raise money in order to rebuild St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And he had a little jingle that he would sing. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And this, by Luther, a German, a monk, watching the people enslaved to giving indulgences, to forking over hard-earned money in order to get a piece of paper that says you've just paid off 50 years of purgatory for, for a loved one or for yourself. You've paid it in advance. It's an important question, and it's very much a question uh, that is not new. What Luther was contending are the same things that we contend today, are the same things that Paul the Apostle was contending in the church. And it's a fundamental question. How are you made right with God? It's the most fundamental question of all that any of us can ever face. How is a person made right with God? As we've pointed out many times, numerous times, there are many religions and even so-called so uh, Christian denominations that get this wrong. What are you trusting in to carry you to heaven? And what are you placing your confidence? Let me say this. What are the things you love for people to know about you? What are your bragging points? What do you love for people to know? And what are you placing your confidence in? Some may think this is a picadillo, this is a small issue, why even go there? Well, according to, to Tetzel and the Roman church, Jesus is pretty good. He can secure things for you, but not all things for you. And so we, we offer this, this, uh, this program where you can buy an indulgence and, and you can help the work of Jesus. This is no different than what the, the church in, uh, of Galatia were dealing with when the people were being told, Jesus is pretty good, but he's not quite enough. And so you must be circumcised as well. The same question, the same problems, these are the things we face today. My friends, it, it, the gospel, what is the gospel and what is it and how is a man to be saved? The good news is not that people must exchange one bad behavior for another behavior. The gospel is not about what good decisions we make for God. The gospel is about what God has done for the sinner. You see, and we get marred and stuck in all of these traditions. Funny thing happened this week as I was taking care of chickens. I washed out a green water bowl and I go out there and I scrub it with my hand and I get all the scum out of the, the side of the bowl and I put the bowl back down. And it was the funniest thing to me, the chickens ran over to that bowl and started to peck the empty bowl as if there was something in it. 
And I looked at that, and I thought to myself, isn't that the way we are? Stuck in tradition and not even understanding what we're doing. There was no food, there was no water in that bowl, and yet they proceeded to pretend like they were eating something, even looking at me as if they were grateful. And I look at the church, and I wonder how many people are stuck in traditions and they think that they're feeding on something and they're feeding on nothing because they've been told that salvation is a work of their hands. Salvation is, a, is doing the right things in the right way at the right time for the right people to see you and then you will be good with God and you won't be. Paul is fighting a colossal fight here. The gospel that he preached was so important that it is necessary that he and they and we be vigilant in protecting it. Again, the, the churches of Galatia had become disturbed by false teachers, as you know, who were adulterating the gospel of grace, who were cheapening it, making what Christ Jesus accomplished not enough to save the sinner. More had to be added, law works had to be done. As we've said before, if you wanted to be a good Christian, you've got to become a Jew. You must be circumcised according to the law. Clearly, Paul's gospel, which he received from the Lord, had come under attack, which is no surprise. I've been told before that if you preach the gospel, you will have a target on your back. Any church that holds the gospel will have a target on its back. Sometimes we're surprised from where those attacks come. Sometimes, as in this instance, it was because of Peter. Cephas, one of the, inner, the, the pillars of the early Christian church, one of the pillars of the apostles. Even Peter messed up. And Peter couldn't be unchallenged. No one is to be permitted to change the gospel of grace. No one should go unchallenged, friends, who dares to alter the way to God through Christ. Paul would say in Galatians 1.8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we read just a little bit ago, we see that Peter, not by his words, but by his behavior, was inconsistent with his understanding of the truth of the gospel, and he began to undermine the gospel. How? He used to eat with the Gentile converts in Antioch. He would gladly sit down and enjoy a meal with them, pull up a chair at the table and eat with them and laugh with them and had no qualms about doing it because he understood that we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace. It no longer matters what I eat. It doesn't matter if I wash my hands and let the water drip off my elbows. It doesn't matter. Those things don't matter anymore. And he had freedom and he enjoyed the body of Christ. He enjoyed the saints. So he would eat. But when men came from James, the party of the circumcision, those who would say, you need to, you need to tighten it up around here. You need to become, think about becoming more Jewish and less Gentile. When these men came from James to Antioch, Peter's practice took a turn for the worse because he feared the party of the circumcision. You can imagine how it goes. They show up. They're very pious. And they show up in Antioch, and Peter's laughing over there with his buddies, and he's 
eating a nice meal with these Gentile believers. And he sees them. And one of them looks at him like this. And all of a sudden, Peter must have thought to himself, what must they think of me and my Christianity that I'm sitting here enjoying myself and a nice meal with this brother? It was so bad that we're told in verse 13 that the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Nearly half the church was influenced by this influence of leaven, which came from Jerusalem. It affected Cephas, that is Peter, and so the Jews uh, in Antioch were affected, and even Barnabas, who was Paul's right-hand man, he was carried away by the sinful practice. The influence was a legalism, an idea that I am, I am made right with God by the works of my hands. A work, as Gerhardus Voss would say, that lacks supreme sense of worship. It obeys, but it does not adore. That all of a sudden what Peter was doing was, was forbidden, it was unwise, it was not kosher to eat with the Gentile converts any longer. Beloved, does your behavior, does your lifestyle hold consistent with the gospel? This is the question for us today. Is your lifestyle consistent with the gospel? Do you require for people to meet, um, to meet with them, um, to, to do certain things before you will consider them a Christian? Do you have requirements for yourself? Do you look at yourself and say, I had my quiet time today, and therefore I'm a good Christian today? Or do you skip your quiet time and say, I'm a bad Christian today? You see other people with the, the piercings in the ear and say, they're not, they can't be very good Christians. Or do you say that they're Christians because of what Christ has done? Does your behavior, does your lifestyle hold consistent with the gospel? At this point in history, in this place, the Apostle Peter's behavior was not consistent, but rather his behavior undermined the gospel. Their behavior revealed something going on in their hearts. Again, listen to verse 14. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? My friends, it is quite possible to believe one thing in our minds and practice another from day to day. Again, Peter was a central figure at the Jerusalem Council. You remember the Jerusalem Council. What are we going to require the Gentiles to do in order to be Christians? Shall we expect them to be circumcised in order to be Christians? What was the answer from the Jerusalem Council? No. No, we don't require that. We don't require them to do that. That's not what the gospel is about. So Peter here was, was a central figure in this whole discussion. He himself would argue that the Gentiles coming to faith in Christ not be shackled by the burden of the Mosaic law. And yet, even after so many years of knowing the truth, he slipped back into a mindset which was not consistent with the gospel. When the men from James came, Cephas eating in the presence of these Gentile converts, he felt dirty like he was not a good enough Christian. He shouldn't be doing this thing. So what did he do? He pulled back from them. He pulls back, he retreats, and so did the other Jews, and so did even Barnabas. 
Was it true? Did eating with them make him dirty? Did it make him unclean? Did it make him unworthy to be called or considered a Christian? You see, if you're prone to use this phraseology of a good Christian, that concerns me. It concerns me greatly when we, we start using that phrase, they're a good Christian, they're not a good Christian. I've, I know I've shared this before, but the reason I find this such a, a dangerous place is because we start phrasing things as, the, as if my Christianity is dependent upon my performance rather than the performance of Christ. There's a whole lot of things that could be said, but, but this is very important. And again, it comes down to who are you going to boast in? What's your bragging point? What are you placing your hope upon in life? Paul says, when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, Paul was watching this happen. Again, first it was Peter, then it was Barnabas, and, and it started to, they started to distance themselves from the Gentile brothers and sisters. They quit eating the love feast with these brothers from pagan backgrounds. Their behavior was different then and conflicting with what they professed. Paul says they were not straightforward. A word only used here, it means walking straight, walking upright, not advancing in the direction of the gospel, not pursuing a straight course in accordance with the truth. They were not practicing what they had preached. Paul calls Cephas out in the presence of all. Why? Because the only way to contain this error is to go to the head of it. A public figure, a public sin should be dealt with publicly. And Paul strikes right at the heart of the matter with what he says. If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? What has Paul observed? He has watched Cephas and the Jews enjoy freedom, not worrying about uncleanness by what they ate or with whom they ate it. Instead of this burdensome weight, this yoke of slavery, he watched these Jewish folks live like Gentiles, having no concern over the foods or the washings, how they must wash themselves or the utensils. He sees them not worrying about meticulous uh, details with diet. They knew these outward things did not make them holy, but after these Judaizers, those who'd come, those who had taught that righteousness was laid hold of through works, after they came, everything began to change. How is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? If you no longer need to live like a Jew by the rules and restrictions, why are you compelling the Gentiles to live like Jews? And that means, why are you forcing the, trying to force the Gentiles uh, uh, to behave like what you used to behave, to make someone do something by inner or outer compulsion? Make them be and do certain things that they would not do normally or be uh, all for the sake of being acceptable to you. If the Gentiles want fellowship with us, they need to stop doing their Gentile things and start doing the Jewish things, the Jewish washings. Don't, don't bring those dishes in with unclean meat. You have to uh, be better than you are. Do better than you do. You see, my friends, this is the problem. We may say Jesus loves the sinner, but our, by our behaviors, by the require, requirements we place upon people, we say there is something more that they need to do and be before you will be acceptable to God and before you will be acceptable to me. And fundamentally, we change the gospel then. 
you see that, we fundamentally change the gospel and we put the burden upon them to perform. And it's not just the Roman Catholics that do that. We do that in Protestant circles just as much. We create rules. We make hoops for people to jump through. Hoops by which we measure their piety. If they will do this, then I'll know that they're a good Christian. That's not the gospel. I see, and this is what Martin Luther was contending for. How is a man made right with God? How are you going to be made right with God? Because death is coming. Many of you like the show Friends, right? Maybe not. Maybe you wouldn't say it if you did. <laughs> Matthew Perry died last night, died yesterday. One of the stars of that show. I never watched it. I saw probably a few clips. Matthew Perry died, 54 years old. Saw it on Breitbart. Shocks me. He's three years younger than me. Death comes. And that's it. Death comes to all people. And we stand before the Lord. Does it matter whether you're right with God? You bet it does. Because not a one of us is guaranteed another day of life. And so I ask you, what would you tell the Lord would be your reason for entering into the kingdom of heaven? And you would say what? Well, I went to church. I was baptized. I was baptized in ice water in, in Georgian Bay. That was a sacrifice as well. Georgian Bay is off of Lake Huron. Very cold. I've done all these things. I've made this profession of faith. I've given all of this stuff. And the Lord will look at you and say, what? Is that your boast? Is that your confidence? I'm the grandson of a preacher. I got a memory verse award. Lord, twice. Is this your boast? What is your boast? We do it too in the Protestant church. We do it too. It was not that Peter ate with Jews that was the problem. It was not that he perhaps stayed away from pork and ate only beef because he preferred beef over pork. It's the fact that something changed. They changed. They made something of indifference a hill to die upon and forced the Gentiles to comply with these matters, all for righteousness sake and striking at the fundamentals of the gospel. That is what it means not to be straightforward about the gospel. Peter, you, Barnabas, and all of you Jews sitting here today, when you pulled up your trays and you walked away for the Gentiles, you, in effect, were saying, Jesus isn't enough to make me right for God. I've also got to do these other things. So we're going to distance ourselves from those people so that other people will start looking better at me. And again, what is your confidence then at that point? You don't stand before me on Judgment Day. You will stand before no other man on Judgment Day. You will stand before the Lord of glory on Judgment Day. Doesn't matter what anyone else thinks of you. My question is, friend, what does Jesus Christ think of you? What does he think of your soul when he looks upon you? 
Practices which come into the church, which are not bad in themselves, may even be good practices, but they are treated with such importance that they become a matter of salvation, confidence of your righteousness before God, and so hinged upon things like family-integrated church, children's Sunday school, how we dress, the kinds of diets we have. I could go on and on about these things. These are warning signs, friends. When you get in such a knot over something external, indifferent, it strikes at something that you're placing your confidence in. We would call it idolatry. It's a dangerous place. When things that are indifferent matters, all of a sudden no longer are indifferent. When they become hills that we die upon, when people you respect come around and you begin to feel disturbed, uneasy, and guilty about things you never used to feel bad about, there is an issue. I love, and I've told you this before, I love music. I have music on my phone uh, of all sorts. I have classical. I have opera. I have uh, instrumental. I have rock and roll. I have all sorts of, of music. I'm glad for these MP3 players uh, because I would have a whole lot of CDs. Back in 1990s, it was the thing you had your CDs displayed next to your stereo components. And I remember there was a man in our church who thought I should only be listening to like the Gaithers. And, um, and I, love, I love music of all sorts. And I remember he was getting ready to come over to my house and there was my my CD collection proudly displayed next to my stereo components, my Denon receiver. And before he came over, I, I, I went over to my CD collection and I started to pull my CDs off out of the rack and stuff them in drawers. I thought he won't have the gall to open my drawers and look. He didn't. But as I'm sticking my CDs, hiding my, ready for this, my Stephen Curtis Chapman, ooh, hard rock. Right? I'm, putting, I'm putting all of these CDs in the drawers because I didn't want to suffer his criticism. And I was convicted and said, you stop it right now. Is there something sinful with these CDs? And I said, no. I'm having a conversation in my head. I said, no. Put them back. So I, I put them back. And just as I'd finished putting them back, the doorbell rings. And the man walks in. He walks over and he looks at my CDs. And he goes, hmm. Just like that. That's what we're talking about. When you start changing things in order to appease people, but you're not serving the Lord, there's a problem. That's what Peter, that's what Barnabas, that's what these Jews were doing. Why? Because they confused the issue. Whether I eat meat or don't eat meat, whether I eat with this Gentile or don't eat with this Gentile, these things, my friends, do not make us righteous or unrighteous. Whether I homeschool or not, we can argue about wisdom. You see, it should not be considered a mark of godliness because godliness comes only from Jesus Christ. Friends, my guess is, is that this is the sort of thing which the church is in greater danger of than someone 
standing up to preach another gospel. It's a subtle kind of leaven. And in the Reformed Church, this is an issue upon which we must remain vigilant. People coming in and introducing things that are not tied to the gospel. And we make them hills to die on, and we shouldn't. It comes by people like Peter, we love, we trust, who are sincere, but who introduce a practice that perhaps has broad acceptance and seems so wholesome, but undermines the true measure of righteousness. And so what does Paul do here? In verse 15, we read, We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Brief point here, Paul reminds them all who they were. They were Jews by nature. That is, they were Jews by origin, by birth. Paul and all of these other Jews had been born into Judaism and raised in its righteousness according to the law, unlike the Gentiles had. If you turn over just a book to Philippians chapter 3, two books, to Philippians chapter 3, listen to verses 4 through 6, as Paul would say, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. That's what Paul would say about himself. The question is, how do you think it went for those Jews trying to keep the law? How did they fare observing the law? Read the Old Testament again. How did they do in following the law? Do you remember what happened to them? They were exiled. They were sent away. They could not keep the law. The law is good. The law is holy. The law is perfect. But the law is designed to get you lost so that you may be found. Anyone who says, well, I obey the Ten Commandments, I go, no, you don't. You don't. No one does. No one can. We're called to it. But we are frustrated at every turn because nobody keeps the law of God. Nobody. And so we flee to Christ. Peter himself stated it. Now therefore, in Acts 15.10, Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? James agreed, as did the whole assembly. They were not sinners from among the Gentiles, like the sinner who has no hope of righteousness in himself. So the Jew, being exposed, raised under the law, also had no hope, because the law is a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, said Paul in Romans 3. So then we come back to this very basic thing. Shall we give indulgences? Shall we go to Mass? Shall we celebrate the Lord's Supper and make sure that I am right with God? Shall I read my Bible? Shall I tithe? Shall I do all of these things in order to perform and show myself to be a good Christian? My friends, we are all, Jew and Greek alike, all under sin, all deserving the wrath and curse of God. If you are to trust in the works of your hands, you will fail. So we read in 16, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh 
will be justified. How are you made right before God? Do better. Try harder. Get your flesh under control. Be more disciplined. Hang out with the right kinds of people and do the right things. Have the right focus. They know that a man, says Paul, is not justified by the works of the law. It's the first time in Paul's writings that the word justified is used, and he uses it three times here. It is a legal term. William Hendrickson said this, It is that gracious act of God whereby, on the basis solely of Christ's accomplished mediatorial work, he declares the sinner just, and the latter accepts this benefit with a believing heart. Imagine, my friends, a courtroom setting with a vile criminal standing before the judge. Somebody must pay for his crimes, and that vile criminal is you. And because of the righteous works of Jesus Christ, his active and passive obedience, his enduring the punishment, the separation from the Father and death on Calvary's cross, in an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons all of your sins and then accepts you, declares you, it is laid to your account that you're right, you're righteous, and all because of Jesus Christ alone. It is received by faith alone, and this is what it means to be justified. Picking up your lunch tray and moving to another table isn't going to get you off the hook. Beating yourself up better or more over your past failures is not going to get you into God's good favor. Trusting in the deeds you do will never deliver you from God's judgment. You can never, ever be good enough. Dropping a coin in the coffer will spring no one's soul from hell. Righteousness, true righteousness, is laid hold of by looking to someone else to pay for your crimes and to merit your salvation. And that is precisely why Jesus Christ came. And some of you, dear brothers, sisters, dear friends, some of you are still not trusting in Jesus Christ. You are trusting in the works of your hands. It is a difficult thing for a moral person and a person raised in a straight-laced home to see their sin because they don't see their sin as sinful. And some of you are wonderful churchgoers, but you're still not resting in Jesus Christ. And your boast is in what you did this week and in what you've done over the course of your life. And it's not looking to the one who is perfect and who demands perfection and who delivers perfection must stop looking at the work of your hands and you must start gazing upon Jesus Christ. That is our only hope and that's why the gospel matters. Paul would say this in Acts 13, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. My friends, it is not our works. It is not marching back to regulations, placing upon ourselves or others a self-made cloak. None of these things will prepare you for heaven. 
but only the clothing and righteousness that Jesus Christ alone can provide. It is to him that the Lord calls us and to him alone. Let's pray. I ask, O oh Father, that you would help us to have ears to hear. And whatever may have been said that would be helpful, that it would be helpful. And that hearts will not rest until they find their rest in you. Father, we come to you thanking you for your many graces and kindnesses to us in our lives. Yet realizing how quickly these things become idols in which we place our hope and our confidence and our souls are easily led astray from the one who saved us by his blood. We ask, O oh Father, that you would restore us to a true understanding of the gospel and that our lives would bear this very fact out, that it is not what we bring to you in our hands, but it is what Christ has brought to us by his hands. We ask, O oh Lord, that we would rejoice in him and that we would boast in him and that you would open doors for this gospel to advance. We pray these things humbly now in Jesus' name. Amen.